0: The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised.
1: Hello, and welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films like deadly weapons. We are your hosts. I am Jay.
0: And I am Mike.
1: On this episode, we'll be going back to the golden age of awful cinema by taking a close look at 1953's Glen or Glenda, Ed Wood's semi-autobiographical plea for transgender acceptance, which lands somewhere between exploitation and one of those movies you'd expect to see in a 1960s sex ed class. In honor of the role Bella Lugosi has in Glen or Glenda, Mike and I will examine our bottom five misleading marquees, which are flicks that name-drop a celebrity in a major way, then pull a bait-and-switch when watched, revealing little to no role for that marquee talent. Finally, we'll go head-to-head in another round of Kick-Two-Pick-Two, wherein Mike and I must choose only two titles of four in a surprise thematic challenge. But first, it's time to don our best Angora in high heels for a look at Glenn or Glenda, a movie, quote, starring Bella Lagosi and writer-director Ed Wood himself. Let's roll the trailer. Why is the modern world shocked by this headline? Why? Glenn and all the hundreds of thousands of other glens across the nation face quite a problem. Mike I feel like with this one, I unleashed a haymaker. Ed Wood's movies are slogs, positively inept attempts at narrative storytelling made on shoestring budgets with wooden acting. The shots are ill composed. The editing is frequently riddled with jump cuts and sometimes entire sequences appear lifted from other unrelated movies. It often feels like he's just striving to get to the 70 minute running time (laughs) because whenever I watch an Ed Wood flick, it feels like it's 700 minutes long.
0: (laughs) How often are you watching Ed Wood flicks? That's what I
1: want to know. At 700 minutes a pop, very rarely. (laughs) (laughs) But with Glenn or Glenda, there's an added challenge at play. We now live in a time where the topic of gender is set squarely in the middle of our culture wars. With the left touting more acceptance of selective pronoun usage and defining gender on a spectrum rather than binary, and the right up in arms about bathroom usage and grooming, tackling something like Glenn or Glenda, even though it's now 70 years old, seems like skydiving into a volcano with TNT on our backs instead of a parachute. But my biggest question with this movie is, does it suck so much that what it's about doesn't matter? Because truth be told... I'm not sure this thing does anyone any favors by existing, despite the fact that it takes on some still progressive ideas, at least with some of its points, on what I would call the correct side of the argument. It's just so bad that trying to glean any meaning or giving it credit seems foolhardy.
0: It's interesting that out of all the Edward options, (laughs) you gave me the movie that perhaps is the least... Guilty of the things Ed Wood is most known for the bad special effects, the flying saucers Mm -hmm. on the strings. In a lot of ways you gave me the most maybe mature Ed Wood film. Right. So I always thought that when we talked about Ed Wood, we'd be talking about the terrible acting and the special effects and all of those things that he's so notorious for. And instead, I think we're about to have a pretty serious conversation about some of the topics that you mentioned. I came away having two things be true at the same time. This is a terrible movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a yeah.
0: bad film. It's tough <laughs> to watch. It's also not dismissible. There are things going on in this movie made in 1953 that are relevant today and mm-hmm. that I think inform conversations that we're having today around gender identity, queer cinema, and all of these kind of things. And so I walked away from this movie simultaneously having had a terrible time and also having a lot to think about, which was kind of an amazing benefit I wasn't expecting. I went into an Ed Wood <laughs> movie thinking I was going to get Plan 9 from outer space. And so in some ways, I don't know if you picked this because it's the most interesting, but it's certainly not the most Ed Wood.
1: Yeah, I did. I picked it because it was the most interesting by far. I also think it's very, it's very interesting that it's considered his debut film mm. so it's funny when you say that it's his most mature it's almost like he started out with some maybe personal intentions he had some skin in this game yeah i mean he himself it was considered himself a transvestite which was interesting because the woman that he acts opposite her name was dolores fuller she's an actress and i use that in air quotes as well <laughs> <laughs> but she didn't realize that he was in fact a transvestite so when it came out after this movie was made, that he actually was one. It came as quite a surprise to her, apparently. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah, I definitely chose it because of the way the world is now and how, as I remembered seeing this movie years and years ago, I remembered that it was very preachy about acceptance. And I know that that seemed a very big concept in 1953. What I don't think I could, that anyone could have expected was that it's about as accepted as it was 70 years prior, maybe even less in some ways, you know, in the way that this is sort of presented.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating that we're still having this conversation. And I think right from the bat, there's a lot of, I think, maybe problematic language going on with this film. There's some terminology that was used in Glenn and Glenda that I don't know, uh, would hold up today. Exactly. Certainly not coming out of some of the characters' mouths for sure. But as we talk about this thing, you know, we're we're having a conversation about a topic that has seen a lot of progress over the last 70 years. And we're talking about it during the Hayes Code, really, a time when cinema mm-hmm. was very restrictive about what you could and couldn't say and how you could and couldn't portray things. And Ed Wood didn't really seem to give a flip about the Hayes Code most of the time. And <laughs> this movie certainly doesn't. And I think all for the better. But what this movie is in a lot of ways, it becomes a roadmap for normalizing and explaining why heterosexual men should wear women's clothes when they want to. <laughs> and an mm-hmm. argument is pretty much that men and the patriarchy define femininity and what is attractive to men. And therefore men should be attracted to those things, thus want to wear those things. It's almost like mm. this really, clinical, logical argument that Wood is making to explain who he is in a time when he couldn't just come out and say who he is. The plot here, I guess if it's worth even getting out of the way, what we really have is a movie that is kind of a 1950s noir for Lack of a more elegant definition, we have a lot of those touches.
1: Yeah, that's (laughs) very generous of you, Mike.
0: (laughs) It's extremely generous, but it's there, right? We have the detective. Yes, yes. There's a crime that's kind of kicked this whole thing off. We have the deep-voiced narrator. We have the. It's it's essentially a docudrama, but it's about this guy Glenn who. Considers himself a crossdresser and likes to wear women's clothes. Again, I don't really know if that's terminology that we really would use today,
1: but it's. Yeah, happening. I feel like I'm not informed well enough to really know what the proper terminology would be for what Glenn is in this movie. It's what he called Glenn in this movie. Yeah, and I think that's not... fair. I think that Edward <laughs> <Yeah>. self identified
0: <laughs> as a crossdresser, and that meaning right, right. that he was a heterosexual man who liked to wear women's clothes. And so the film spends its entire runtime essentially exploring gender diversity in this cold, clinical, Mm -hmm. 1950s sex education video style.
1: Right, exactly.
0: It introduces us to Glenn, who is not a trans woman, but like I said, identifies as a crossdresser. He's engaged to be married to his fiance, Barbara, and he's fearful of what will happen when he reveals his true self to her. That Mm -hmm. is the first setup of the movie, but... What's really progressive about this thing is that there's a couple of really modern issues that kick the whole thing off. The whole framework is that a trans woman has committed suicide.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
0: the detective is trying to kind of unravel what are trans people and why did this person commit suicide? And yeah. That's, that's ostensibly the framework for the narrative that we're going to get if we could generously it,
1: call it that. it sounds so intelligent when you talk about it this way and yes it is not in any way shape or form something that you look at the way that you've just described it yes uh-huh. those pieces are in the film but they're so poorly assembled and mm-hmm. so poorly put together so badly written so poorly acted i think i did choose the wrong phrase when i said preachy but it is in some way. I think we both said the same thing when we were talking about the 1950s or 1960s sex ed video. Yeah, that doctor character that keeps talking over everything, right? The narrator,
0: not to be confused with Bella Lugosi, who is for some reason just mumbling like <laughs> the craziest. Like, so, was he I, improvising? What I is don't happening? know. <laughs> I, it was like Bella. We want you to do a lot of mushrooms then say (laughs) anything that you want we're gonna throw some thunder and lightning behind it for no reason whatsoever and put it in the movie but you can say anything oh snips and snails
1: and puppy duck tails he was credited as the scientist and what was so weird about the framework of this thing is you're right and analyzing it as an as like a 50s noir but then they wanted to get a little bit of the '50s, early '60s science vibe in there, and so he's credited yeah, as the, mad the scientist, scientist right. the yeah. scientist. He
0: he almost at the beginning of the movie it implies that Bela Lugosi invents life in a test tube. Yes,
1: that's correct. <laughs> yes, he what are you doing? Is, movie
0: like what? Is well, that because
1: happening? he creates them, he creates them, and then as they sort of learn who they are because this isn't just about Glenn or Glenda. It's about Pat and Patricia who die at the beginning of the thing. That's the person that committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And then they, they go into that story a little bit. Then they talk about Glenn and Glenda as a representative story of a type of cross dressing. Then they have Alan and Anne, the soldier. Oh yeah. Story. And we'll,
0: and we'll get to that. Cause that is a whole different can of worms. Oh boy. It's <laughs>
1: the, and that's a short this is sort of like appended on, and somewhere in the middle in there you've got for some reason, just fetish footage mm-hmm. and somehow, for reasons I'm not sure why the scientist is sort of woven in, and then on top of that, the detective having the discussion with the very informed doctor
0: yeah <laughs> this it, it feels like it could be runtime the movie because <laughs> you're absolutely right, you set it up. You swear that he decided the movie was going to be X number of minutes long and he was going to do any nonsense to hit that mark, including an uncomfortable amount of stock footage, (laughs) Bella Lugosi just rambling ad nauseum. Yeah. We go to great lengths to get to where we get to, and yet we've been nowhere. (laughs) I guess
1: the producer had a lot to do with that. It wasn't even Ed Wood. I think that if you were to, and I'm, I'm not sure if some... Entrepreneurial <laughs> web person went out there and tried to just cobble together the Glenn or Glenda story by itself, mm-hmm. without Lagosi, perhaps without even the the detectives. Although I'm not sure, you might need that framework. Yeah, probably do. And without the fetish footage, I think that's the movie that Edward was trying to make, and it might actually be semi watchable. And then what happened was George Weiss, the producer, who made a lot of these found not found footage, but B-roll stock movies where they just stuffed it full of garbage, (laughs) just tried to sell it out there. That guy needed it to be longer. He wanted specifically a sex change movie that was pulled right from the headlines. I guess there was a big story around that time and he wanted to actually make it with that person in it. Mm -hmm. And they said no. And so he's uh, okay. Well, you know, and Ed Wood somehow got involved and Ed Wood made a movie about cross dresser, not, You know, it was very Mm -hmm. specific about what it was about. So Weiss wanted something more exploitative and he's the one that really padded the running time. So it's interesting. We can't even necessarily blame Wood for this one, I don't think. (laughs) For all that stuff. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Look, this is a terrible movie. It's a hard watch. It's not a good time. And I'm working (laughs) pretty hard to add what I think is a modern viewing of a 1950s film to the conversation But I think that the movie holds up to it. And I think, you know, we're having this kind of renaissance right now in queer cinema, especially Mm. queer horror. Mm -hmm. It's old and cliche at this point. And kind of how awesome is that to say that queer cinema has deep roots in horror? And I think it's kind of fantastic that that has become a cliche because we're kind of having this renaissance right now of queer horror. And so when you look back through the history of horror, which I think is what Ed Wood really wanted to be was a horror director Mm -hmm. with all Mm -hmm. the work with Lugosi and what he did after this. You know, you can go back to *Bride of Frankenstein and Cat People and Psycho, Rocky Horror Picture Show, more modern films like Assassination Nation or Bodies, 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 which is a recent hit in Hollywood, I think. There's a really great documentary series called Queer for Fear on Shudder that explores all of this. And so I think it's really interesting to have this conversation about Glenn or Glenda, even if this isn't the conversation that Glenn or Glenda was having with itself. (laughs) As a cis man, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to have the first idea what it's like in this current day and age, or even that day and age to say, I am a man and I enjoy women's clothing, right? Or I'm non-binary or I'm trans. I sure as hell hope that it's easier than it was in 1953 to do that. But Hmm. I'm not really sure that it is.
1: Yeah, I don't know either. Yeah.
0: But so in many ways, I think Glenar or Glenda is kind of a confessional disguised as this docudrama where Edward is kind of hiding behind his camera, hiding behind these characters, but trying to tell the world who he is in a way that he never did again in his other films, mm-hmm. putting himself in this lead role as Glenn and putting on the Angora sweater, which by all accounts is something that he really enjoyed doing in his private life. In 1953, we're talking post-World War II, leave it to Beaver. We are defining America's ideas of masculine and feminine, ideas that will not die. This is a time that is in our current day being held up by some people as the gold standard for American culture. And here's Ed Wood back in 1953 saying, hold on. There's a lot more going on in this world. And that couldn't be any more relevant than it is today. So this really terrible movie, I think so much more relevant now than it was then.
1: I was surprised in rewatching it because I decided that you weren't going to have to do this solo. I was going to revisit so that I knew what to talk about. (laughs) So we both went through hell together. And I think that the thing that I found was just... How the ideas presented in the doctor dialogue really—that's mm-hmm. where you get all of this, right? And in, in the sequences between Ed Wood, I guess, sort of playing himself and his yeah. girlfriend, more or less playing herself, th- these autobiographical sort of aspects of it are really pretty interesting if you know that story about it, yeah. And you and you think about the larger themes that they're talking about, but as a film, Mike, it's absolutely absolutely the worst thing that we've had to watch on this show yet
0: yeah yep and, <laughs> i mean and, it really and, is yeah it,
1: it's startling and it's, it's
0: barely a movie it's barely right a movie because i <laughs> mean i am i movie. am desperately trying to call it this docudrama when it is neither of those things yes yeah. it is yeah. not a documentary it is not a drama to its credit i think Glenna glenda is never played for laughs and that's one of the things that I, I think is kind of true. remarkable is that Edward never makes fun of this character. He's very earnest, and this is a man that yeah, wants to dress in women's true. clothing. So it's yeah. also not funny. <laughs> There's so many <laughs> things that this movie is not, and yet it's still somehow a movie. And <laughs> and, and you talked about it. I think we have to get into it the second half of this movie is when things just go off the rails because we get some (laughs) resolution to the Glenn or Glenda story. And we almost go into like another vignette, right? About this soldier that came home from the war and had gender reassignment surgery. I don't know if Edward didn't trust the material enough. Like you said, maybe the producer just got his hands real deep in the runtime, but it's like a goddamn first year film student inside the (laughs) Willy Wonka tunnel Satan shows up with whips and has like sexy couch time with ladies and their PJs. There's stock footage of war and factories. <laughs> and the devil is all over the second half of this movie. Yeah, yeah, problematic. And, and unfortunately, problematic. what really kind of happens is it feels to me in some ways like it undercuts some it of does. the progressive message of the first half because it almost in the experimental insanity of the second half, Kind of implies that everything that is gender non conforming is somehow deviant.
1: Yeah, it does give you that vibe for sure, As, especially with the arrival of the Satan character. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I was very confused by his presence before I learned that Wood probably didn't shoot some of that stuff. Or if he did, I think that Satan may have represented traditional marriage, traditional. Uh-huh. Values like that sort of thing. Traditional but...
0: eyebrows. Can we talk about this? Maybe cinema's greatest eyebrows. What the fuck is happening in this with the eyebrows? Who's like when we think of, when we think of the devil? It's like look, I don't care how you portray the devil, but the eyebrows have got to be to 11. We should have done bottom five (laughs) eyebrows based on that alone.
1: (laughs) They were phenomenal.
0: So like I said, I I had a terrible time watching this movie. I worked really hard because I was so checked out of the film. I worked really hard to have an interesting conversation with myself about what this movie could have been and what this movie I think has come to symbolize To a lot of people, because one of the great things about this reappreciation of queer cinema is that Ed Wood has kind of come back into our cultural conversation as one of those waypoints in the long story of queer cinema. Glenn or Glenda Mm -hmm. is a movie that had a reissue or re-release it, you know, after years of being just out in the phantom zone. Mm -hmm. It got kind of picked back up in the 1980s and has become this cult classic, not because it's a good movie, but because almost accidentally it gains relevancy as our culture seems to have this like retrogenesis where we have <laughs> it seems half the country who want to push us back to the 50s yeah and ed wood waiting there in 1953 to say hey guys i'm kind of interested in what you might do over the next 70 years yeah so it's a really interesting movie for reasons that are not the fault of the movie
1: yeah so true so true and i think that the other thing that's really representative about it feeds directly into our bottom five which is the use of bella lugosi in the film
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the sort of idea that you could get away with sticking a name on a marquee really prominently featuring it as a marketing ploy and then when you watch the film the appearance of that celebrity that star is tangential at best
0: when your are buddies with one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. <laughs> you stick them in all your movies. It didn't make my bottom five. It's just occurring to me now. But this is kind of like how Kevin Smith continues to sneak Matt Damon ben and Affleck, Affleck into yeah. all his movies. <laughs> right. I can't blame the guy, right? If they'll answer the phone when you call and they'll show up for an afternoon <laughs> in a sandwich, then by all means, put them in your movie.
1: Legosi, I guess, was nearing the end of his life at this point. He would go on to do, uh, at least I know Plan 9 was him... In a couple shots, and then he used somebody from behind to yeah, sort his, of,
0: his dentist, right, like I think, like a
1: stand-in. <laughs> oh, yeah, the dentist. Yeah, but the use of him here, I mean, obviously, he had like an afternoon with him. He shot a bunch of weird stuff, and then yep. wove it through the film. Word is, he was taking a lot of medications. Had become drug addicted due to a back problem was after a, a divorce that really left him in a lurch, mm-hmm. was not great psychologically. And I felt like, I just feel like, ugh,
0: he's kind of ugly. Yeah, you're right. I felt the same way. Ed Wood had this big star name who was in a bad place. And it does feel a little bit, like he exploited all of that for his own benefit.
1: Right. But it I guess. It certainly does in, in, no favors
0: in, to Lugosi. I mean, it doesn't show him. And it makes him look nuts, honestly. Yeah, uh, he, he looks crazy. He's spouting nonsense. Yes, yeah. I, he's so charismatic with the eyes and the voice and all of that sure, kind of stuff. Sure, but yeah.
1: I, I walk away from it thinking like, oh, it's just kind of gross.
0: Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, what we come away with is Ed Wood was a really complicated guy. Yeah. At a time when it was difficult to be complicated. Sure. And here we are 70 years later, and it's still (laughs) difficult to be complicated. And in a lot of ways, we've gone nowhere since 1953 (laughs) when Glenn and Glenda came out. But if we've learned anything is that Ed Wood isn't just the guy who makes bad movies. He's also the guy who makes bad movies. And I think here's my challenge as we wrap up this conversation We don't usually look back here on Film Jitsu, but I think we should commit ourselves to at some point doing another Ed Wood movie that is all of the things that Ed Wood is most known for. We need to do one of his shit sci-fi movies at some point, whether Mm. that's Plan 9 or Bride of the Monster or whatever that is. I would love to have a conversation about Ed Wood, the technical filmmaker, because Mm. I think there's so much more to this guy. We ended up talking about maybe the interesting stuff and yeah. I think we should talk about the fun stuff too. So maybe <laughs> down the line, that's a conversation we have is, is I want to talk about shitty flying saucers and the sets that fall over and all of that kind of stuff. We didn't really get to have that conversation today. I think we had a better one. Uh, but mm. what I do know is that for all of the stuff that maybe you can bring into Glenn and Glenda, I will never bring my eyeballs back to Glen or Glenda ever again.
1: <laughs> never. I don't feel compelled all that much to do exactly what you just said. I feel as though the shenaniganry that goes into the Ed Wood films that are well-known, the the bad acting and the, and the bad sets, etc., are all very commented on already. And I felt like this was the thing that was worth still talking about. Yeah, maybe a better talk this. But I don't even have any interest in talking about the other stuff. So I guess I'll know I'll be watching uh, Bride of the Monster next week. Yeah. That's
0: exactly (laughs) what I wanted to hear. Five, four, three, two, one. Jason, I think you landed on what is perhaps the most reasonable bottom five we could have done for a movie like Glenn or Glenda. The thing that really jumps out is Bella Lugosi is in this movie for a handful of insane minutes (laughs) but he gets top billing in the film you think you're getting a bella lugosi film what you get is a bella lugosi meltdown but (laughs) it leads us to our bottom five misleading marquees those times when a film reports that it has a big star in the film and that turns (laughs) out to be not the case So, a a pretty simple setup, I think, for that. But uh, I had fun putting this list together. I tried to work hard to think of, do I order it in order of how big the star was that wasn't in the movie? At the end of the day, I I decided that uh, maybe I would just kind of have a little bit of fun with it and be all over the place. So that's what I did. But I am interested to hear what you have at your number five.
1: My number five is Apocalypse Now from Mm. 1971, Francis Ford Coppola. Advertising that Marlon Brando is in this film was a bait and switch that few call as such because the movie is viewed as a masterpiece. And I've spoken a bit about Apocalypse Now when I recommended the documentary shot by Eleanor Coppola about her husband's descent into madness making the movie. Part of his descent was trying to get and then work with Marlon Brando, who at this point in his career owed a lot to Coppola after the filmmaker gave him that latter-day career bump by casting him as Don Corleone in 1972's The Godfather. The work by Brando that you see, I mean, how would you describe it? I would call it unremarkable.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure I agree 100% with you on your police work there. Oh, man.
1: I i completely can oh, I, I actually, it.
0: I considered this for the reasons that you're saying, but yeah. I think that the short amount of time Brando is in this movie is so big and memorable and remarkable that I didn't fault it for what I think is more a cameo than anything else. Because I think the whole movie is is about getting to that bit with Kurtz in the jungle and Brando goes huge. And so for me, technically you're right. Technically you're right. (laughs) But I actually didn't fault it for that because I think Brando is, is so perfect in the time that he gets. Oh
1: my God. He's, he's a mess. He yeah. doesn't make any sense. He shot in just Shadow. They say he was close to 300 pounds. He was mm-hmm. very unfit for the role. He immediately gets in a fight with Dennis Hopper. Yeah, he was Brando. <laughs> he hated the script. He wouldn't memorize He couldn't memorize his lines. Yep. He didn't even read the source material. He didn't read Heart of Darkness," but just Conrad. The whole thing comes across as hackneyed after you've got this amazing journey that you've gone on uh-huh. through, through hell. And then on the poster is Brando's face. The
0: face. It's not I know. Martin
1: Sheen's face. It's Brando's face. This movie did not have the Marlon Brando. Sure. In it. Yeah. It did not. Yeah. So yep. I'm gonna I'm, I stick with it at number five. Yep. I think my police work was fine. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> my number five is sometimes something just pops right out at you. For me, it's always the best example that comes right to mind. And there's no one who loves '90s action movies that could possibly forget the swift kick in the dick that was 1996's Executive Decision. (laughs) This is a film that promised the action star smash-up of Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal. That's right, a not-yet-insane, right in his sweet early 90s, the Seagalist of Seagal time, in 1996, we get Executive Decision, And Steven Seagal is sucked out of a fucking airplane in like the first 10 minutes of the movie. Come on. Can you imagine 1996 Mike just sitting heartbroken in front of the screen at what had just happened? Because you know what? I had recently gone under siege. I had recently been marked for death. (laughs) I was so excited for Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal and to have him out of the movie in 10 minutes was not only a misleading marquee, but it like hurt (laughs) the heart of a child.
1: I think that that premature death of a character may be something that we mine a little bit for this misleading marquee. I definitely did for my number four. And it's a bit of a cheat because the movie wears this misleading marquee as its calling card. It's Psycho from 1960, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Mm. It starts with Janet Leigh as Marion Crane. Steals a chunk of change from a real estate office job. Runs off to be with her married co-worker. She's established as our lead character. And then it comes as an enormous surprise when she is murdered in the shower. One of the most standout sequences in cinematic history.
0: So you and I, I think, approach this a little differently. Because while that is a misleading marquee, that Mm -hmm. for me isn't bottom five material. Because Mm -hmm. that's kind of the point. It's so effective. That is part of the tension is that Hitchcock knows that the audience never expects Janet Lee to be killed off in that film in the way that it is. And so for me, that's almost like a top five misleading (laughs) marquee.
1: I could see that that way.
0: It's the same reason I didn't include Drew Barrymore in Scream for that very same reason, because it's a filmmaking technique that I really think works to the film's benefit. That's how I composed my list. But you and I always look at these a little differently.
1: Yeah, and I saw it as like, what's the marketing say? What's the marketing say? Marketing has Janet Lee in a bra on the front of Mm -hmm. the thing. It establishes her as the lead in the movie. Yes, I completely agree with you. It uses it to a perfect effect. So I feel like, yes, absolutely. It's a top five. But for me, it needs to be mentioned because it leads to so many others Mm -hmm. that took up the mantle and I can't imagine having a misleading marquees list without it. So yep. I get I totally understand your point for sure.
0: It is a bit a dirty pull, right? I mean that it is, really you know,
1: is It really yeah. is. It really is. When you put someone on a in the publicity this way and you don't really share too much what you do share puts her in the movie.
0: And you know what? Maybe I'm having a hard time because I'm still thinking of like poor me, 15 years old, sitting in the theater (laughs) with my clip-on ponytail, practicing my clavicle smashing and how how heartbroken I was at executive decision. And I just, I can't find that same heartbreak in Marion Crane. We all go a little mad sometimes.
1: Haven't you? Yes. Sometimes just one time can be
0: enough. My number four, this one is my cheat. I like to have a good cheat. Okay, this isn't on the marquee in the same way that it's billing its actor. But this one, I think, bothers me a little bit more than others. For my number four, I'm going with Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas because Henry Selleck directed that film. Ah, it's so good. And it, it has bothered me forever that yeah. if Tim Burton looks at a movie, his if he directs it, if he produces it, if he's heard about it, if he ate popcorn while somebody else was talking <laughs> about it, it becomes Tim Burton's movie. And I'm here to tell you that I think that Henry Selick is a hell of a director in his own right. Oh, for sure. I think maybe this is sacrilegious for some people. I think Coraline is a better movie than The Nightmare Before Christmas. Far better. Bit far time, better. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so. For me, it always bothers me that Tim Burton gets the top billing on this Mm -hmm. movie. And Henry Selick for years was just kind of out in the cold. A lot of people grew up not even knowing that Burton didn't direct the film and kind of discovered it later.
1: Even what's worse, because they thought that Burton directed Nightmare Before Christmas, they thought that Tim Burton directed Coraline. Right. I've heard plenty of people misapply credit to Mm -hmm. Tim Burton for Coraline, which he wasn't really, he wasn't involved with. So
0: yep. and to be clear, this is not like a Tim Burton problem. Absolutely I, I don't not. Really Burton. <laughs> no. I think Burton's a good filmmaker. I love the movies that he has made, especially the live action stuff. Yeah. I like his live action stuff a lot, but it always bothers me that Henry Selick didn't get the marquee that Tim Burton ended up getting. Again, it's those marketing motherfuckers. You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's the bean counters that make these things happen. You know, there's there's an algorithm here. I get that. Yeah. But
1: but that's the point of this list. For me, that was really the point of this list, and that's the point of what happened with Glenn or Glenda. The movie was made to make money off of a sensationalized topic, and then they advertise it with Bella Lugosi, thinking like, "Oh my God, Bella Lugosi's in a movie about a sex change operation." What <laughs> you know? And then you get it, and you're like, "Oh no." Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's exactly what I was kind of getting at.
0: Yeah. So this one isn't quite as cringy as that, no. but it does, it does bother me. So no, that's why it's it. on my list at four. Yeah. I get it. I think
1: our both of our fours are sort of playing with the, the list a little bit. Like, yeah, yeah. Psycho, yeah. I probably didn't need to, but it certainly sets up my number three, which is one where I think we'll agree. This is what Psycho sets up. And that's Halloween Resurrection from 2002, directed by... Rick Rosenthal, who, by the way, did Halloween 2, which I thought was so interesting when I saw that and was like, oh, my God, that's right. Like this guy did Halloween 2. He's only done two good movies, Uh Halloween 2. And I mean, I like Halloween Resurrection. I'm one of the few that actually found it memorable, but whatever. Most people agree that out of the nine original Halloween movies, this is the worst one. But I can tell you that it's not because of the first 10 minutes. Because this first 10 minutes is some shit. Let me tell it you. It is some shit. And you, the, the marketing really made this look like it was a sequel to Halloween H2O in every way possible. And it is because it does pretty much pick up and explain how Michael Myers could be decapitated at the end mm-hmm. of one movie and then yet somehow be still alive. Lori Strode, her trying to get even more vengeance, right? They end up trapping Michael using her as bait. And because of what happened in the last movie, she has to look and pull off the mask. And when she does, he stabs her in the chest, throws her off a roof. And that is the end of Laurie Strode in the original timeline. Wow. Like, whoa, that's intense. And then it's a pretty rough ride from then on out.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Halloween 2018 retcons all of that nonsense with one brilliant line.
1: Do you mean that Halloween 2018 thus retcons Busta Rhymes in his reality TV show about haunted
0: houses? Yep. Yeah, I think Busta's still alive thanks to 2018's Halloween. Yeah, that's right. There you go. Fear TV or whatever the hell that was, (laughs) I don't remember, is is still out there on the interwebs for everybody to watch.
1: Fantastic. Well, what's your uh, number three look like, my friend?
0: I'm making it about one person rather than a whole movie. (laughs) Here I am going with Eric Roberts in basically fucking everything oh, with for Eric sure. Roberts. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, that's a great one.
0: <laughs> take a guess, Jason. Yeah. Just take a guess. We're going to play a game. If you're listening at home, <laughs> take a guess how many acting credits Eric Roberts has on IMDb as of right now. Okay. Our listeners take a second, lock in your answer. What do you suppose it is?
1: Eric Roberts, I'm going to say 119.
0: At the time of this recording. Yes. 705. That acting credits
1: doesn't seem possible.
0: He sometimes posts 75 movies in a single year. He's done as many as three separate movies in a day. Come on. How? No. What? (laughs) Rolls in, says his lines, rolls out does the next one and they put eric roberts on the box cover and the marquee i mean let's be honest none of these movies are making an actual marquee right these aren't getting <laughs> theatrically released but you
1: know, i knew we did a lot but so oh. and
0: i and i'm telling you that that's today as we record by the time that this is hitting listeners ears lord knows because he is just a factory wow Eric Roberts is like his own cottage industry of just being in movies. And I think if you give him, I guess it's got to be like
1: a ham sandwich and a Coke.
0: Here you go. Ham sandwich (laughs) and whatever the guild minimum is. And that must be (laughs) it for the day, right? It's it's so shameless and also like kind of awesome at the same time. I got to respect this game, I suppose.
1: (laughs) Eric Roberts goes, he says a couple lines, he gets lunch. And it's like, okay, where are you getting dinner tonight? Oh, I'm I'm doing a film. I'm going to get dinner over there.
0: <laughs> yeah. He's got to like catch an Uber to the next film in time for supper. It's crazy.
1: <laughs> it's unbelievable. Eric Roberts in a series of craft stables.
0: That's the movie I want to see. That's like the, the unbearable weight of massive talent, like the right. Nick Cage meta movie. I want to see... The Eric Roberts craft services movie. If they can make a movie about spirit Halloween, then they can make a movie about Eric Roberts at the craft services table.
1: He would gladly be in it for,
0: (laughs) you know, for just craft services.
1: You think, you know, me, I asked you a question. You think, you know, me, because the way you're looking at me, we must be old friends. My number two is, it, it's a bit of different than the rest of my list because it's not about a single actor or actress that's misrepresented as a star for the sake of marketing and sales. Mm. But it's the combination of two actors for that same reason. So the year is 1995 and Michael Mann, he of Miami mm. Vice fame and a smattering of well-received films, including the first Hannibal Lecter movie, Manhunter, uh-huh. and last of the Mohicans starring Daniel Day-Lewis. He pulled together this big budget reboot of a television pilot he'd attempted to and failed to get off the ground back in the late 70s. This wasn't news so much as the cast was. Man had somehow done the impossible. Pulled together a movie starring two of the most respected and well-renowned actors in cinema history. No, not Steven Seagal and Kurt Russell. (laughs) But these two prior to this had only appeared in one other film together and never, never in the same scene. That original film, The Godfather 2, the actors, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, the result, one fucking scene. Yep. (laughs) That's it. It's a really great scene, but...
0: It's a really great scene in a really (laughs) great movie. It is. Maybe you replace it with Seagal and Kurt Russell. Maybe it's a better movie. Maybe it's a better movie. I don't know. No, I mean, Michael Mann's heat, it only gets better with age yeah,
1: I, agree. And, I agree and
0: it's a great scene but yeah yes. you're right but you're selling it with the two
1: of them on the poster and it's like no
0: it's brutal. and you know
1: and everybody's talking about them acting together and and you do you get this what's so great about heat is that you really are the the film is structured around their two characters and so when they meet It's a slow burn, right? It's the slow burn. Really, it's two guys at the top of their game. Man knew it. He knew exactly how to frame it. He knew how to play to both of the actors' strengths as actors. Mm -hmm. It is such a masterclass of direction and acting. But seriously, one fucking scene.
0: <laughs> this is the great thing about film jitsu. Is I'm just listing things that cause me heartbreaking consternation, and you're just putting a masterclass of awesome films. You're just like, here are five fucking awesome movies. <laughs>
1: Boom in your face. It's I don't great. know. I don't know that anybody's gonna call Halloween Resurrection an awesome film, Mike. But okay,
0: <laughs> it might not be Apocalypse Now. I'll give you that. My number two is here because of. How shameless it is. It's almost such a dick move that it's funny. This is a misleading marquee for one of the worst movies ever made. Hmm. A film that probably wasn't on very many actual marquees when it came out. I'm talking about Birdemic, Shock and Terror. <laughs> a movie we've ripped up on this show in the past. The movie that had the scrote to give Tippy Hedron, Yeah, that Tippy Hedron build on the marquee for being in Birdemic Shock and Terror, the queen of all avian-related horror. So she's in the movie for a hot second in the background on a muted television, like an hour into the film, and that's
1: it. Oh, my God.
0: She appears on the TV in the background for a sec. (laughs) Wow. And this guy has the balls to put Tippi Hedren... On the marquee. Oh my
1: God. That's exceptional your picks feel so much more like things that i would have chosen yeah. <laughs> so it's like what is what is happening right now?
0: well because you're usually the one that is angry and aggrieved at what has happened to you and that's where that's what i'm doing i'm like <laughs>
1: that's what you're doing like, this what do time you mean? yes
0: what do you mean the king of kimonos got sucked out of the airplane I, I came to see steven seagal damn it
1: <laughs> the number of times you are coming back to executive decision is <laughs> remarkable
0: it's appropriate and fair <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Tippy Hedron on the television for a second. Yeah. Get out of here Oof. with that mess.
1: Yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, my number one is a touchy one. It's a tough way to end this list, but I think that there's a good story to it. And while a lot of internet pundits and credits have made hay with the latter day output of Bruce Willis's career, specifically the Razzie Awards, who actually created a category specifically for Willis to run against himself for worst performance, the truth is, Bruce Willis's, and, and this is a quote involvement in films, even if for a fleeting few minutes, help low budget independent filmmakers sell their films internationally. And that's a quote from an article in the Los Angeles Times, which counted the number of Willis starring movies at 22 mm. since 2018. 15 of them were done after 2019. So 15 films in two years. And why? Because unlike what happened to Bella Lugosi with Ed Wood or even Marlon Brando with Coppola on Apocalypse Now, because Brando, he retired mm-hmm. a couple of years later, a retired, like lightly retired. He did some stuff afterward, but this was Willis making money off of his own name, right?
0: Yeah.
1: At an estimated $2 million per role for light work, the actor took agency over his latter day career. And while some say he was exploited, I see him as savvy and smart to do what he did, which had to have been challenging. Now the audiences, well, I'm sure there were plenty that were dismayed by the output, but upon the revelation of his condition, most seem to agree that all of his cinematic sins are pretty much forgiven. Even the Razzie Awards retracted that category poking fun at the actor.
0: Be careful sometimes when you make fun of a dude because Yeah, it turns out there was a lot more going on behind the scenes there.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: I found the reporting on this whole thing very interesting because as a guy who knows a little bit about the brain from my professional work, they reported on Bruce Willis having aphasia, which is the brain's inability to formulate and comprehend language. They Mm -hmm. didn't use the word dementia in the reporting, but they went Mm. way out of their way to not say, and I think this is probably a PR thing. Mm -hmm. There was never a conversation about Bruce Willis has dementia. It was Bruce Willis has aphasia. Uh, And so that was a little bit of a a misdirect in the way that they presented what was going on with Bruce Willis. But you're absolutely right. The guy saw his craft leaving him, and he Mm -hmm. did everything that he could to make hay while the sun shines, Right up until the last moment that he he just couldn't carry on anymore. It's really hard to blame a guy for that.
1: It is, except it still is very much a misleading marquee.
0: Big time. It's the Eric Roberts thing. It's the same thing as the Eric Roberts thing.
1: It is and it isn't, right? Because it's Bruce Willis, number one. Not a lot of people are going to see Eric Roberts. Right. Number one, he's just, he isn't a marquee name. He might have had some big movies back in the 80s. But he's no Bruce
0: Willis. Yeah,
1: But he's no Bruce I mean, we're talking about an absolute cinema icon Yep, who all of the sudden started churning out movies. Before that really happened, at the very beginning of it, he made a movie called Glass with M. Night Shyamalan that was sort of a sequel to Unbreakable. Yep, And it was a movie I was so excited for and I liked so much of, but ultimately I was left wondering where was Bruce Willis? Mm-hmm. Because when I watched him in that movie... He didn't seem present. And then when this came out, I hadn't seen any of these other movies. They didn't look very good. I had no real interest in them. I don't really go Mm -hmm. for a lot of that kind of stuff. But I can see that as very much a misleading marquee. You see Mm -hmm. Bruce Willis's name on a science fiction movie. He's right there on the poster. You think, oh, I'm going to watch that flick. And then you get something that's, it's Bruce Willis. He's in the movie, but he's clearly not Bruce Willis. And that's still a misleading marquee. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
0: You're right. I mean, it's sort of the sad version of the Eric Roberts situation, right? Correct. Right. Exactly. I think maybe as we go through our list, we've hit upon a couple of really big name actors. And that's a part of the formula for me, right? Who could be bigger than Bruce Willis? Maybe Marlon Brando and that's it. Which is why here at my number one, short and sweet, it might be the most obvious and also objectively correct answer to the question of a misleading marquee. One of American cinema history's most revered actors is in a movie on the marquee and you get nothing more than Marlon Brando's bloated head in a shiny jumpsuit for barely 10 minutes of screen time. Superman 1978.
1: Almost did it. Almost did it. Went with apocalypse now instead.
0: The yep. poster, the goddamn poster says mm-hmm. Alexander Salkind presents Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman in a Richard Donner film.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He gets
0: top billing. He walked away with $14 million. He worked barely 12 days, refused multiple takes, and he's in a grand total of about 10 chit-chatty moments of the movie. Mm -hmm. So bad, in fact, that they had to recycle some of the material for the sequel.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right.
0: And so I think that to me, maybe even the reason why I wouldn't have put Apocalypse now on my bottom five is because I think there's a almost a worse example of Brando doing that thing. <laughs> yeah. Coppola made it work. And true. For, for me, true. he made it work. This does not work. It's unbelievable. Uh, I, uh, I mean uh, see, I disagree
1: because I actually really like him as Jarrell at the beginning of the movie. I love the way he looks. I like the way he pulls off his lines. He he works for me in that role. And I really did. I, th- I felt like I, I liked the way he he did his work there.
0: I'm not saying that I don't like the work that he did in the role. I'm saying that when you tell me that Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman in a Richard Donner <laughs> film, I would like Marlon Brando in the film for more than 10 chit-chatty minutes here and there. It's I mean, it's yeah, so for misleading. Sure. For now, sure.
1: No, I get you. This
0: was the movie that made Christopher Reeve a big deal. Sure. Gene Hackman was really the name going into this film. You got to market it somehow. Again, I can't blame the marketing department. If you got Brando in your movie for 10 minutes, you put him on the marquee. But come on.
1: Yeah, but they didn't put pictures of him on the marquee, did they? Like, it's not like Apocalypse Now, where his face is right on the <laughs> thing. It's a little more like the Drew Barrymore, if you think about it. It's a little more like the Drew Barrymore from Scream, right? They really marketed her, but they used it very specifically in that psycho way. Yeah. It was it was pretty similar in Superman. You probably thought you were going to get a lot more of Jarell, you know, this big name actor, you know, and oh my God, wait, did he just... Die with an entire planet full of people?
0: And I mean, let's be honest. If you know the Superman story, you know that's gonna happen. You go yeah. into 1978 Superman wanting to see Superman, not Jarell. Fine. But man, when you're like, Marlon Brando's in this movie, you're like, no, he isn't. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, he really isn't. <laughs>
1: Our Kick 2, Pick 2 is usually a random theme where we come up with four movies that are bound together somehow, and then we get to keep two and throw two away forever. They never existed.
0: Deep into the Phantom Zone.
1: But this time around, I'm going to do it a little bit differently, and I'm actually going to stick to one of the themes of Glenn or Glenda. And so our Kick 2, Pick 2 theme... For this episode is cross-dressing movies. Okay. Are you ready for these four movies? I'm ready. All right. It is. Tootsie, Mrs. Doubtfire, Rocky Horror Picture Show, or Psycho, what are the two that you keep? What are the two that get launched into the sun to save the earth?
0: Okay. I like the connective tissue thing that we got going here. That's, you're right. Usually, we don't necessarily have a connection between the main review and the Pick two, kick two. So, uh, I like that you're uh, you're drawing some thematic elements. For me, uh, this is an easy list of three. I'm gonna take Tootsie out right away.
1: Okay, good.
0: It's a good film. Dustin Hoffman's great in the role. It's iconic. It's not a film that really is personal to me in any way. The Mm -hmm. other three are. (laughs) I love Psycho. I it's a classic. It's an important movie for a lot of reasons. For me, it's almost like, I don't know how I can get Psycho off of this list. It's going to be hard to do. (laughs) Rocky Horror Picture Show is a movie that I love. It's so fun. It really, you know that I love Halloween and that whole kind of crazy costume season. It's big. It's loud. It's over the top. I don't know if that reminds you of anybody. (laughs) But then there's Mrs. Doubtfire, Jay.
1: It's right in your 90s sweet spot, kid. Well, here's the
0: thing. Here's the thing. My grandma loved Mrs. Doubtfire. My grandmother, I saw this in the theater with my grandmother three times.
1: (laughs) Wow. Okay.
0: Three times with grandma. She went home and told my grandfather that he had to come see it. My grandfather Mm -hmm. was still so angry about Popeye that he refused to watch another Robin Williams movie in his entire life and abstained from. Mrs. Doubtfire, even when my grandmother bought the movie on VHS and brought it home, he would leave the room. Oh my God. Yes. Take that, Robert Altman. I know, right? <laughs> Jeez. What am I? I'm Papa,
1: the sailor. And I am what I am, what I am, and I am what I am, and that's all that I am, because I am what I am.
0: Oh. Hmm. Where are you on this? Because I'm going to need a minute.
1: Yeah, I think you need a minute. I think for me, and this is a tough one for me too. I actually really like Tootsie a lot. I saw it when I was a kid in the movie theater with my mom. So it has really pleasant memories attached to it. I see Bill Murray's character in Tootsie very much as a rough draft of Peter Venkman. So I, I feel like Tootsie's really hard for me to kick. I love Mrs. Doubtfire. I think that's a terrific comedy. Robin Williams does some really fantastic work. Rocky Horror Picture Show, I came to super late, despite once being married to someone who used to do enactments, (laughs) Mm. you know, during those midnight showings. Yeah. But I came to it late. I really thought it was fantastic. And Psycho is cinematic history. I think you can't kick Psycho. I agree. I think I have to keep Rocky Horror Picture Show. I think I can't keep Tootsie or Mrs. Doubtfire in this one. I I think that Rocky Horror Picture Show and Psycho are too important to cinema history. I think Tim Curry is so deliciously campy and hilarious.
0: I'm declaring Um, a new film jitsu rule right this moment, which is that if Tim Curry's on a list, I'm never cutting him. I just can't. (laughs) I can't bring myself to get rid of any Tim Curry performance ever. I'm not going to do it.
1: Clue wins every time.
0: Yeah, I don't care. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. If Tim Curry's involved, I just can't cut it. If there's anybody in here, just look out.
1: What happens to the kick two, pick two of Tim Curry movies? What happens when I do that to you?
0: I don't, well, then we'll, we'll cross <laughs> that bridge when we up, get kid. there. But, uh, so I think Rocky Horror Picture Show is going to be one of mine. I agree with you there. So are you officially Rocky Horror and Psycho? Those you're, you're yeah. locking it in? Okay.
1: Yep, those are mine.
0: Ah, um, Psycho, I know there's a little bit of angst over, is that kind of a problematic depiction of a queer character?
1: Oh, I would say so, yes. I think, fair, right? I <laughs> yes, mean, yeah, yeah so, definitely.
0: So because I want to be lighthearted and fun here, I think I'm going to go Rocky Horror Picture Show and Mrs. And Doubtfire.
1: Mrs. Doubtfire, oh my God. You Mostly, cut you know what,
0: respect to Ruth. Uh, I Grandma, I from beyond the grave, I could hear my grandmother being disappointed in me. If I didn't pick this, so for, fair. Me, for reasons that are personal and and wonderful, I'm keeping Mrs. Doubtfire, and it's got to be Rocky Horror Picture Show. To for be
1: me. fair, you could have been honoring your grandfather by kicking Mrs. Doubtfire. I just <laughs> want to be very. Clear. <laughs> Oh no! So, Mike, you know, I mean, you've created this. You've created this issue. Now you're picking favorites here. You
0: created this issue. No, I was, I was so comfortable with my choice here, and now you've, you've added this whole miserable thing in. That now now you have uh, to go
1: with Psycho now.
0: You know what? My grandfather was a funny guy who was wrong about a lot of stuff. (laughs) I'm comfortable (laughs) saying, sorry, Ralph, you're still wrong on this one. So for Ruth and Ralph, you know what? My grandmother was right most of the time about most things. So Rocky Horror Picture Show, Mrs. Doubtfire. That's my final answer.
1: With that... We have to move along to our next assignment. You've got something for me.
0: I spent a good amount of time thinking about what this might be and also thinking about the kind of movies that potentially could appear on a film jitsu episode and that I would never want to watch. Mm. And so so (laughs) I am excited to say out loud to your ears that you're going to be watching 2007s based on a line of really kind of upsetting dolls. Brats? Brats. Oh, come on. You're watching Brats. Really? During their first year of high school, (laughs) four best girlfriends face off against a dominating student body president. (laughs) I don't ever want to watch Brats. It's 100% a film jitsu kind of movie. What am I going to do with Brats? (laughs) Well, you're going to sit down and watch all one hour and 50 minutes of Brats. Wow, it's
1: a lengthy film. It sure Good heavens, is.
0: that's 110 minutes. <laughs> that's... I haven't discounted the possibility that you might end up loving this movie in a way that only <laughs> Jason Santo can. Like, still, you're still the guy that's like head yeah. of the Charlie's Angels fan club. And so, yep. yeah, I never pretty much. know what to expect with you. It's the beauty of having you as my co host on the show. So, who knows what's going to happen. I have a sneaky suspicion there are going to be swear words. And so, you're going to watch 2007's Bratz. And we're going to do, appropriately, our bottom oh, five God. teachers. Oh, okay. Our bottom okay. five teachers. Cinema has it's given It's not us a bottom so five Brats. <laughs> not bottom five Brats. No, nope. That's another list for another day. Okay. I could have just asked you to watch like six or seven of the direct-to-DVD animated Brats cartoons until you hit 150 minutes. I don't know, but I thought- <laughs> Boy, a, a live-action Bratz movie, huh? Let's let's see what happens. Oh, it's there. live action. It's live action. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, I thought yeah. It was gonna be like CG or
1: something. Oh,
0: it's live action. It's a, it is a cavalcade of no names. It's gonna be really something. Yeah, no, you have this to is... watch. You have to watch actors act in a Bratz movie. Yep, <laughs> this is not an animated film. Uh-uh. No, no, no.
1: Fantastic. Oh, I, I'm up for the challenge. I know nothing about it. Clearly. I, this is so far off my radar <laughs> well done sir this is a great one Thank um, you. I'm looking forward Thank you. to it well it looks like on the next episode you'll hear me dealing with Bratz the movie <laughs> but until then we've been your hosts I am Jay
0: and I am Mike
1: we'll see you next time That's brass with a
0: Z. You should know. <laughs> I do know that. <laughs> well, fuck it. Anyway.